Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Steaming Licker. And in this week's special episode, I sit down with Paizo game designer Stephen Raddy McFarlane, and we talk all about the Pathfinder 2nd Edition Core Rulebook. Now, unlike some past interviews and overviews you've seen, where people sit down and go through how to build a character, or they go through specific magic items, they go through actually how the system plays, I sit down with Stephen and I talk to him more about game design, theory, their thought process behind the creation of the rules, what were some of their guiding principles. To me, as a GM and also a game designer, I look at rules probably differently than some people do. I know a lot of people, especially players, look at rules and they think, oh cool, what are the classes you can play? What are the ancestries you can have? What are the spells and the cool magic items? I read a rule book and I look at it and say, okay, how do the feats work? How does the XP progression work? How does the magic system work? I myself am much more interested in the behind the scenes, the math, the nitty gritty, what it actually takes for the engine to run. I'm very interested in the game engine because that is really where it all comes down to, is that you need to have a really good game engine for the game to sustain and last a long time. And that's one thing that obviously Pathfinder 1st Edition, which I don't blame Pathfinder for because that was a flaw of 3.5, is that it kind of broke down at higher levels. And Jason Bowman's gone through this. There's a lot of reasons. This is actually very well known how and why it broke down at higher levels. And they knew that, and they did a lot to fix that in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. And as someone who's read the rules and now played the game a few times, I feel that not only did they address it, but they solved it. So I wanted to go through with him how they did it, what they did to actually get to this point where it feels like a very tight and sync system, both a level 1 and a level 20. And unlike some other game systems I won't mention, it feels very free. It doesn't feel constrictive at all. It feels like a very free system, but yet is very controlled and confined. And that, I think, is really hard to do. So anyhow, when you sit down and listen to this interview, that's kind of the crux of this interview. And we go into that, too. We also go into some game mechanics as well, but that's not the focus of this interview. And finally, I did want to mention that we're going to have another interview later this week where I sit down and talk to Paizo developers all about the Lost Omens World Guide. I go through it in extensive detail with them, and almost nothing's been told about this. I've seen very little previews, 
In a few days, you're going to hear me sit down with two Paizo developers go through this in detail. So stick with this channel, subscribe to the podcast, subscribe to the YouTube channel, and you won't miss out on that interview. And finally, I do want to mention, if you guys want to hear us do some actual play podcasting, and if you guys like the No Direction and the Role for Combat players, then you're in luck. Next week, August 1st, Thursday at midnight, we are dropping the very first episode of Roll for Combat Pathfinder, where we're going to be playing the Fall of Plaguestone on the show. And on that show, we have two members from No Direction, Vanessa Hoskins and Lauren Seg. They're both going to be joining us. And then on the Roll for Combat side, we have myself, we have Rob Tremarco, and Jason McDonald. So we got a nice mixture here. And I have to say, we've already recorded a few episodes. If you're fans of our Starfinder game, well, it's actually extremely different. It's unbelievably different. We're just, a, it's a very different group. So it's very heavy role playing, a lot of voices, and so far very little to almost no goofing around. And it's a really tight show. I'm actually kind of even surprised at myself. I listened to it and it's like I'm almost listening to someone else. I can't even believe it's us, to be honest. Not that it's a bad thing. I actually am kind of stunned how good the show is. So anyhow, that comes out next Thursday. It's going to be a weekly show. We're going through the fall of Plague Stone and... These guys are really dedicated to role-playing, unlike, well, I won't say our Starfinder show isn't dedicated to role-playing, but I'd say they spend about as much time ripping on each other as they do actually playing the game. But so far in this game, it's been 99% gaming and maybe 1% fooling around, if that, which makes for a really different show, and I'm actually really excited about it. So be on the lookout for that in a week and a half. I think you're all going to really like it. Anyhow, with that, let's get on to my interview with Steven. Hey everyone, this is Steve, and I have a special guest today. I'm sitting down with Paizo's senior game designer, Steven Radney McFarlane, who, as you might remember from our interview from last year, is my evil twin. Or rather, we're both evil, and we're both named Stephen, spelled the correct way. Isn't that right, Stephen? Absolutely. Uh, and both of us are from the Mirror Universe, so we don't have to worry about the, the two evil twins. We don't have to worry about our good halves coming back. So today, we're going to talk all about Pathfinder 2nd Edition core rulebook, in which you were the, one of the main designers of. But one of the things is, I wanted to talk to you yeah, we'll we'll go into the core rules and we'll talk about the reaction economy and you know all the different classes and ancestries. But I actually wanted to talk to you more about game design philosophy because I'm going to start off with my idea because I've read the rules several times and the rules are going to be coming out in a few weeks and everyone will get their hands on it. But one of the things I noticed when I read through these rules is I kept thinking that it was very much almost like Magic the Gathering in the sense that you have lots of little simple rules that can easily be combined together, and there's keywords like Magic has, 
to make something greater than the sum of its parts. And that is like actually one of the big successes of magic where there's lots of little rules and you can combine them in infinite ways and break them in little ways to make magic cards. And when I was reading the classes and the spells, I very much felt like that because it feels like there's lots of little feats you can take and little ancestries and little backgrounds and it can make very rich very detailed characters very easily as opposed to say first edition where it was a little bit more regimented and you're really stuck in roles and i feel like that is a big step forward in the pathfinder philosophy and how pathfinder 2 was made yeah, I, I would agree. Um, uh, interestingly enough, I ran uh, a D&D game, long-term D&D game, with a lot of the guys who started Magic the Gathering. And I think it's kind of an understatement that Magic the Gathering revolutionized, uh, especially tabletop game mechanics, uh, but also uh, computer game mechanics as well, in uh, its exception-based design. The fact that uh, a lot of things you want to work on similar patterns and so you might as well just build the patterns within the game rules. And so I think that's why you see keywords. I think that's why we changed everything to, a, a, you know, rather than having different formats and different names for various class features, we all went with feet. Um, it, it frees up uh, not only a lot of brain space for the players, but it helps a lot in creating digital tools and localization and just an ease of play that I think uh, all of us, uh, at least on the design team, really enjoy. Yeah, in fact, when I read through these rules, I mean, I'm a programmer by trade, it almost felt like computer programming in the sense that everything was very modular, it was very easy to fit in, and everything had its place. Like a perfect example of this for people who haven't seen rules yet is the attack keyword. Like in the past, you might have to every time you had some new ability or feat that had an attack, you would have to spend several sentences wasting explaining how an attack works or how that specific attack works. But here, it just says attack, and that's all you need to know. It's like, yes, this is an attack. It uses the same rules, and that's all you need to know. And that's repeated everywhere in this book. And not only does it save a huge amount of printing space, but brain space, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. Um I mean, one of the one of the criticisms, not only in in Pathfinder First Edition, but uh, Third and Three Five, um, that that was there is attack meant various different things in the rules based on the context. Um, so we wanted, wherever possible, not to have words that were sort of uh, heavy lifting in the game design mean two different things based on the structure of the sentence or uh, where they were sitting. And so we tried wherever we could to avoid that. Something else I noticed is that you have a lot more secret roles in this game. What was the uh, philosophy behind having so many more secret roles? Well, I mean, um, well, let's take the example of your knowledge skills or, or you know, your, your knowledge roles, recall knowledge and everything else. Um, some of that came from the fact that, you know, our brains are tricky. And so, uh, we wanted to create a system where you might absolutely believe something because the GM told you it, but you're not quite sure whether or not it's accurate, right? If you make that role, you see the role, you have a really good idea of, uh, of, of how it is accurate or not accurate, um, and you're going to role play uh, in, in, in that way. So what we wanted to do is create doubt 
where there should be doubt, you know, whether or not is, did I really, did, did I really dispel that, that curse? Is it really gone? Is the knowledge I have in my head absolutely correct? Uh, or anything else where you don't have perfect knowledge of the situation, we put it on a secret role. Now, it should be noted that the secret role, in a lot of ways, is a guideline. A GM can always sit there and say, yeah, forget about it. Go ahead and make the role out, you know, out in front. But that was the philosophy behind the secret roles. Yeah, the only reason I actually jumped to secret roles, because that's actually one of the keywords that you see a lot is I'm looking right now in the skills, that's where it shows up the most, is that you'll see like decipher writing and the keywords are concentrate, exploration, secret. And that's a role that's done in secret. And there's a lot of roles now that are secret. And I've been talking to some players, what they think about it. And I know a lot of players who are not going to like that. The roles are secret now and they don't have perfect information because if you think about it, it's very rare that in Pathfinder first edition that there's secret roles, but there's a lot more now. I mean, it's good to hear, as you said, it's like, that's an optional item, but there's a lot of secret checks now. I mean, I would say that there's a fair number of secret checks and we were very careful in where we put it. Uh, and it, it was basically, you know, things like I said, where, where you don't have perfect information uh, because the thing is in your head or it deals with, your degree of knowledge um, or just uh, the circumstances that are going on. I mean, yeah, players don't like it. Players don't like it when they uh, may have failed and they don't know it. But in a lot of ways, uh, one of our guiding principles was to help narration. Um, There's a lot of criticism in P1 and uh, things, uh, especially that I saw and everything else that players would steamroll the GM's decisions because they're like, that's not what the rules say. That's not what the rules say. So when we wanted to put a little bit of that ambiguity in there and give the GM a little bit more power on the narration, um, that's when we put the secret roles or we have things like the GM gets to decide rather than, you know, this sort of stringent, uh, do this, do this, do this, do this. Yeah. You're actually the second person to say that James Jacobs the other day said that a big goal of Pathfinder 2nd Edition was to give power back to the GM because it felt like a lot of times players would use rules as a weapon against the GM. And it seems like a lot of the rules are helping to bring back the balance to GMs. Players are always going to use rules, uh, not only against the GM, but even on you know things like magic. Take all sorts of strange interpretations and, and everything. I had an ex-wife who who came up with the strangest interpretations for her her cards when whenever we play magic or other games uh which the whole idea is to try to limit that at least where the gm wants to limit that so what were some of the main philosophies going into designing second edition what were some of the main guidelines that you were trying to address at all times for this edition well i think the first one and the key one was don't change the story of, of Pathfinder and Galarian wherever possible. Um, sometimes we broke that guideline uh, when playtesters uh, said that, you know, we could break those guidelines. Other times we did it to, to make things a little bit more interesting. But as, as far as that goes, that was, that was our first, um, first and overriding goal is don't change the story. 
What else would you say is also uh, important in terms of design philosophy? I know I've heard in the past that one of the big issues you had with the math is that, for example, fighters, their fort saves would continue to go up as they were getting higher and higher level. But then like their will saves were actually getting worse as they just kept going higher and higher level. It seems like the math is much more linear at this point and people who are good at things get better at things, but they never really get much worse than they were at first level. They're so we're sort of always at the same point that they were. If they weren't good at something at first level, they're still not going to be great at it at 10th level, but they're not going to be much worse at it. They're going to still sort of be at the same level as everyone else who's bad at it. Yeah, that's, that's very true. We, uh, the, the term we batted around was uh, fractional progression. Um, fractional progression has been around probably since the early days of D&D. And it seems like a really good idea because it works very well until you, you know, hit 6th level or 12th level or everything else. But uh, as people kept on playing higher level games, we found one of two things occurred. Either they stopped playing higher level games and they were only playing within a certain level band. Or, man, they complained a lot about basically getting better at your key things and getting much worse. And and that complicated with, you know, save and die effects and everything else could create a very swingy experience at higher level play. Some people enjoy that swingy experience, but we wanted to sort of uh, uh, flatten it out a little bit. So you had a chance at even the things that you weren't built towards when you were higher level. And that chance was relatively around the same level as it was for that first through five or six through 10 level spread. Yeah. I mean, the math seems much, much tighter in this edition and it's, it's very simple. It's like, it's very simple. It's literally, okay, you take your level, you take your key stat and then you take your um, proficiency, and that's kind of it. And that's that's really all you really need, and that becomes your role. And it, it it's one of those, like, it's so simple, I don't know why someone didn't think of it earlier type things. Well, I mean, some games did think of it earlier, or at least had certain iterations of that. And uh, uh, D&D 4th Edition uh, had a, a similar setup with some key differences. Um, yeah, basically, we wouldn't... We wanted to put you more in the mind of thinking about what your character could do rather than finding the math. Or, you know, uh, we heard Math Finder a lot. We understood um, what people were saying, saying with that. So, yeah, we wanted to make it a little bit easier. So you learn one thing, and then you might have different iterations of that thing uh, over the stretch of your character creation. But you always understood it. You didn't have to relearn something. You didn't have to relearn a new sort of uh, uh, procedure or program in order to figure out how to maximize the various parts of the game that you wanted to use. Yeah, I also really like the proficiency, as uh, James Jacobson and I were saying, is that now you can make a level one baker who can be a legendary baker. You don't have to make them a level 13 NPC to make them legendary, that you can actually change proficiencies for low-level NPCs as needed as the story requires it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we wanted a little bit more freedom of, of you know, the secondary players in the world, the, the NPCs that were interesting to interact with, but you weren't going to fight, um, and make them viable all throughout. Um, P, P1 and 3rd Edition 
did that uh, with NPC classes, but they always seem to be very um, artificial and, you know, trying to wrap your head about what a 20th level commoner actually was, uh, was maddening. Um, and so, yeah, whenever we came across a rule structure like that, that made people go, huh? Uh, we, we tried to improve it. And the other thing I liked about the proficiencies is that it also allows kind of an artificial gate system where you see that a lot with uh, traps is that, yeah, I can be a level one rogue, but there's traps, and you see this in the rules, that you have to be trained or expert or master level thievery to disarm. It doesn't matter how good your thievery skill is. If you're not master level, you will set it off, period, end of discussion. And I kind of like how it rewards players who dedicate their characters and their time to specific traits or feats, as opposed to, oh, yeah, I just, that was a dump stat, and I just put all my points into that, and now I'm as good as you, and I'm a fighter, and you're a rogue. Yeah, we definitely wanted to um, encourage uh, and reward your build. You know, if you want to be the greatest trap person in the world, uh, it's it's not about you know, what magic item you found or how many buffs can be added on to you and everything else, right? There's there's an intrinsic knowledge there that trumps the raw numbers. So give me some ideas of what was the thought process behind the new system of rarity. I mean, I think, you know, you see that obviously in video games quite a bit. But one thing I'm noticing is that in the adventure modules and the supplements, like the Lost Omens World Guide, you have uncommon feats and traits that you can take. Um, you know, you can actually then have these as rewards because they're uncommon or rare. And I presume also then the GM doesn't feel like they have to give it to their players because they say, oh, you know, I saw this trait or this feat in this uh, supplement, therefore I want it. But as soon as you get the uncommon you know, trade against it. You can say, well, you know, that's uncommon and sorry, it's not available in this part of the world. So what was the like design philosophy behind all that? Well, rarity has, has a few functions. Um, one, it gives kind of a benchmark of, you know, of, of course we design the core of the game. So anybody can kind of use it for whatever, uh, whatever they want. But we also think very hard about where this fits in our own campaign world of Valerian. And so in a lot of ways, it just kind of gives people an idea of where those items, where those rules bits sit within the main world. On the second side, we could, we've easily found that we could create rewards for basically exploring a different part of the world or playing on a certain adventure. And, and that was fun and neat and interesting, right? You're not going to be able to get this thing unless you played in, you know, Plague Stone, right? Uh, it's 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 something that builds onto your character uh, by way of their experiences, rather than you just found kind of an online dump of everything in the in Pathfinder rules. And we 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 thought that was interesting and compelling. Uh, as as a tertiary thing is, it also helps us to create a rather static game state, being able to use all of those things within organized play. So. You know, if you want to if you want to buy items in between adventures, you may be only limited to common items, but you can gain uh, uncommon or even rare, sometimes even unique items through play. 
And so uh, that was that was the third reason as to why we were really excited about Rarity. The fun thing about Rarity, though, is for those GMs that go, well, I want none of that. You just file off the serial numbers and you do whatever you want with it. Since it's not, it, it's it, it's a basically um, a trait just like everything else. Uh, if for some reason that doesn't fit in your campaign, you just change it. Yep, it's it's a nice hack. You know, I love the rarity system, and I love how modular the game is now. That right in Plaguestone and some of the Adventure Path modules that you can get a feat or a spell as a reward, which is something you don't really ever see. And I understand that that's going to be kind of the norm now is that, yeah, that you can get skills and feats and backgrounds that are specific only to that adventure. And if your character goes through that adventure, they can learn things that they couldn't learn anywhere else. Again, much like society play, but this is in actual adventure play in a way. No, absolutely. I think it's, you know, some of it goes back to, you know, Jason and I are a little bit older, um, remembering back when, you know, we craved whatever adventure content we could grab. Um, and I, like a very early game, uh, D&D game I played in when I was when I was a kid, like, and everybody was all like, I am the king of the fire giants. Well, how did you become the king of the fire giants? It's like, well, I killed the king of the fire giants you know, because they went through against the giants and it's all like, huh, that wasn't something that was there, but it sort of uh, spurred our imaginations when, when we were young, that you could become the king of the fire giants by killing the king of the fire giants. And it was silly and weird, but there was a glimmer of, uh, of that idea there that I think the rarity system really sort of uh, grabs and runs with in a more exciting, uh, maybe mature way. Yeah, I mean, personally, I love it. And also, people are familiar with it. You know, you say a rarity system, you don't have to teach anybody anything. You know, in this world and day and age, everyone knows what rarity is. It's kind of funny, like how hit points, you know, you can go to anyone, whether they're a geek or not, and you can say hit points, and nine times out of ten, they're going to know what you're talking about, even if they've never played Pathfinder before, a video game. They will just know it's sort of part of a common culture now. And the same thing with the rarity system. Everyone knows these rarity systems from gaming or as a kid or if you played Pokemon or something. So as soon as you say rarity system, people immediately have idea of how that works and what that means in terms of whether it's a weapon or whether it's a spell or a feat or anything that they can immediately add value to it by, oh, that's uncommon? Cool. That's something I have that no one else has. Even though it's really just words on a page, but as soon as you say uncommon or rare, people start adding you know value to that very, th- those words, if you will. Oh, absolutely. Um, a few years back, I was teaching a lot of game design classes in the Seattle area, uh, which, was, which was a heck of a lot of fun. But, uh, you know, these these kids were coming into class and I, I would explain to them, you are living in the wake of what not only Dungeons and Dragons, but a, a few other key games has created. Right. You know so much about game design right now just from what you've experienced. Right. If I say hit points or armor class or or rarity or any of this stuff, you immediately know what that is. Try to transport yourself back to the early 70s. And it sounds like jargony magic. And and as games develop, they develop a language. And not only will you know various things that are in P2 might influence other games, other games and, and how they did things, of course, influence P2. And that's uh, one of the 
the wonderful fun parts of game design. Yeah, in fact, it's it's fascinating. I mean, I'm a big history fan in terms of I've read the um, but some of the books about the history of Dungeons and Dragons and how, you know, it's funny you think about these things, but like the word level. <laughs> you know, it's like level was invented by sort of D&D and wargaming. And, you know, if you think about it, it's like, oh, of course there's levels in role-playing games and World of Warcraft and Pathfinder and, and all, you know, that's just, like, assumed. But that wasn't, like, something assumed. And on, on, on top of that, the funny thing is level is one of those words that means, like, 20 different things depending on the context. So it, in, in retrospect, it actually was a terrible word to use because level is used everywhere and everything, and yet it became synonymous with all aspects of gaming. No, absolutely. Um, back, back before we even started on the second edition, my fellow designer, Sean K. Reynolds, had a list of terms that he wanted to absolutely change, and one of them were level. Not that he didn't want to use level, but the fact that, you know, even, even in P2, right, what, when we say level, we try to standardize that mostly, right? But because spell level is is a one to one to ten rather than a one to twenty it means something slightly different and we had a lot of conversations on whether or not we should change that name but unfortunately um or maybe fortunately names like that uh, jargon if you will um also comes with momentum and so at the end we decided well almost everybody who comes across these games has a certain expectation so let's not change that word but uh, for the most part, except for spells, um, we 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 went to a different you know one to twenty system for that, and we talked a lot about whether or not to change spell level, uh, and decided not to. And what was the philosophy between going to ten? Finally, it's funny. It's one of those things. It's like we go up to spell level ten now. It's it's the magic tenth level spell. But it's a real dilemma. It's it's really it, you have to really dedicate yourself to get a tenth level spell. You only get one, and they're insanely powerful. But there's so many other things to choose. I was curious of what your thought was in the design space that you just don't. Oh yeah, here's your reward. You get a tenth level spell. It's like no, here's your reward. You get ten really cool things. The tenth level spell is actually only one of those really cool things that you can get as a reward for getting up so high. Well, I mean, we realized, uh, and, and we realized it for a while, that ninth-level spells were not created equal, and like some of them really belong to be uh, belong uh, on a higher list, and so that was sort of the thing that that started us on it. Um, and then there were certain things because of you know uh, our levels being one to twenty, and then we had this one to ten. Uh, that we could streamline some things. We could streamline the progression of uh, full spellcasters uh, or non-focused non dependent spellcasters, uh, as you could probably call it a P2. Um, and so, so yeah, we wanted we wanted a group of spells to be a very extra special thing that you can get because you can cast. You know, th those spells are really powerful. We thought they should stand aside of other things that you would have to choose and they should be a hard choice uh, for when you finally reach those heights. So let's talk a little bit about proficiencies now, because one of the things you did, which was one of those stealth changes that will change the game dramatically is, is that you kind of folded 
both weapon and armor proficiencies into will saves and other proficiencies you you sort of took multiple magic items and combined them into one which i've seen a couple of times in the rules because one thing that especially if you've been playing pathfinder and dnd as long as i have which is like 43 years you get kind of rote so you're like you're always going to get the cloak of resistance you're always going to get the ring of protection like you're always going to get the same things over and over again and it becomes like a whole checklist and you guys took a lot of those items that you usually get and combined them into much fewer items so you don't have to be in the hunt for those five or six magic items that you always need in the beginning well yeah we wanted magic items to be a little bit more well magical right um rather than this small list of essential items or sometimes a rather large list of essential items, we wanted folks to be uh, happy with kind of the oddball items that they got and not feel like by using them or putting them into a certain slot and everything else, they were actually making their characters worse because they weren't taking the thing that actually was there to increase their stats up to what was considered the baseline. And so... It, it mostly came from 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 the idea of we want magic items to be well flipping cool, right? Uh, um, and not just obligatory. Yeah, I mean, I, a perfect example is because now you have like a plus one armor, which gives you an AC of plus one, but then you have plus one resilient armor, which gives you a plus one to your AC and a plus one item bonus to your save. So it's like one of those. Yeah, there we go. Everyone's going to get, you know, plus one armor, but you don't have to waste two magic items to get your save bonus. Now it's just one item. It's both armor and save. And you do that with the magic weapons, too. It's And there's other ways that that's folded into the rules throughout. That's probably the most obvious example. Yeah, and that's even got a, a little bit more to it. It's Because if you find this kind of favorite sword that you really like, and, you know, you, you like the kind of sword, maybe you start off with this 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 cool sword that your dad gave. Be, with the ruin system, you don't have to throw away that sword when you find another sword. You can you can actually make that sword better, or that suit of armor better, in, in a relatively easy way. Because uh, we know that... You know, there is a mix of mechanics and story involved in any any tale and role-playing game. And uh, we wanted to make it easier for you not to feel that some items were disposable. That, well, you know, my, my grandpa gave me this thing, but screw it, because here's this new shiny uh, thing over here. I'm going to grab that. We wanted to make it so you could uh, in increase those uh, heirloom items uh, fairly easily and not feel like you were betraying the story because you wanted a better bonus. Yeah, I actually wanted to talk about the rune system because it makes transferring magic bonuses so much easier now. And exactly what you described, because I GM'd a game where one of the player characters was a dwarf and he had his heirloom uh, his heirloom sword and he said, it's like, yeah, I'm using the sword from the beginning to the end of the game, period. And meanwhile, he comes like 15th level, and I think he made it like a plus one, you know, weapon. But it never, it never really scaled with his character the way, you know, some of the weapons that were dropping that he could have used. But with this new rune system, you can continuously upgrade and enchant and change your weapon. And you can keep that heirloom weapon all the way up to 20th level and make your weapon cool throughout and not have to sacrifice it. 
Absolutely. And that was the main goal uh, uh, of, of the rune system, you know, because it's cool playing that dwarf who has that sword that was, you know, has been in the family since dirt and doesn't want to get rid of it. Uh, I, we felt you should be penalized for that. Why don't you quickly explain the rune system? Cause I don't know if people know what the rune system is and I don't think I've heard it described too much in other interviews so far. Uh, sure. The, the rune system mostly works on magic and armor and uh, there are potency ruins that are, you know, kind of your plus one, plus two, uh, plus three. And then you have property runes on top of it, which can give you sort of extra things like the resilience uh, armor that you were talking about, which allows you to not only uh, have the, the, you know, start off with an interesting weapon, um, but to actually make that weapon more interesting based on, on what you find and what you want uh, over time. So one thing I wanted to touch on is the first thing I did, of course, which I'm sure a lot of people are going to do, is, you know, you go to the magic item area and you start searching for some of the items that increase your stats. And I'm like, oh, I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm looking and I'm like, I can't seem to find it anywhere. And then I finally find it way at the end under worn items. It's under the W, so it's very, very hidden. And it turns out that the only items that allow you to increase your stats are level 17 items that are 15,000 gold pieces. And that's kind of it. It looks like the ability to modify and change stats is greatly limited in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. What was the thought process behind that? Well, I mean, yes and no. A lot of that ability to change your stats actually goes into character development. You know, every five levels you get four boosts. And so we wanted, instead of you finding the right item at lower levels to increase your stats, you get to build your stat increases through the leveling process, through adventuring, through, you know, you get to make choices. And so, you know, before you get a plus one and one thing, now you gain four boosts in, in, in four different stats. And so because we were a lot more liberal with that to allow you to sort of shape your character organically as you went up, that's why you see things like the belt of re regeneration, uh, all of the uh, apex items at a much higher level. Because in a lot of ways, th that ability to for a magic item to change your fundamental being, your ability scores, we felt should be at a higher level uh, rather than something you're chasing at the mid-levels. Uh, again, with the idea that this is this is how I stay relevant. Uh, we wanted you to do that organically through uh, character development instead. I mean, personally, I love it, but I'm starting a new game, and I was talking to the player characters, and I said, by the way, you don't get level increases, you know, until, like, ability increases to level five. And there's no more, you know, belt of strength or, you know, the item of intelligence, all this stuff. That's all gone. And they all had the same reaction as, like, really? And then they really, they double-checked, triple-checked their characters because when they realized that those ability stats that they start off with, they're pretty much stuck with until fifth level. It was a much 
more arduous process and they were very dedicated to making sure their characters were built correctly which is fascinating from even my point of view because you know it's one of those eh, you know i can make my strength a 14 i'll just make a find a plus two strength belt somewhere along the way you know they're not that expensive it's like no that's gone you have to you know if you want your character to get stronger you have to dedicate time and effort to it during character development there's no more magic items to uh use as a crutch yeah, I mean, even if you kind of take a look at P1, you know, you take a look, you know, bull strength and everything else, the very easy things to increase your stats. Yeah, we wanted to 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 get away from that buffing, or if we did it, right, to to actually have something a little bit more thematic. Like if if you get, you know, if, if we create a, a bull strength spell down the way, we want to make that you get an increase to acrobatics to shove, and, and do other things that are more bull-like. It's not just a flat increase on, on, on your strength, like just a naked increase. Wherever possible, we try to get rid of just straight math boosts and give you something a little bit more evocative and interesting. And then keep the, the ability boost towards things like how are you developing your, your character? How are you making choices in the game? And uh, we just found that to be a little bit more evocative and fun than, I, I guess you could say, is the old math finder machine. So another item that went through big, big changes are wands. And I know that was an uh, item of contention because, you know, obviously people would just buy the, was it magic stick or the, forgot the terminology everyone uses, but the, you know, it's like, oh yeah, just buy a whole mess full of, you know, wands of light healing and just, you know, heal up your characters after every fight and just, you know, carry around a truckload of those. And that's how I really like the way you guys handle it. I really, it's interesting. They, you know, it's like you have a wand, you use it once a day if you want, and you can use it two times a day, but once you use it two times a day, you either break it or destroy it and that's it. And uh, I was just wondering how you finally came to that mechanic. Well, I mean, we had a, a, a bunch of probably half a dozen, if not more, different iterations of wands. We wanted to make wands cool. We wanted to stray away from the spell in a can. That was one of the things that we tried to design away from wherever possible. This is just a spell in a can. One, because it sort of cheapens your actual spell casters in, in, in many ways. Uh, and, uh, and then we just really didn't think in the long run it was an interesting item. It was a very useful item not not interesting so so we came up with the whole idea where yeah you can have a spell in a can and you can do it once per day but you can try to overcharge it and that comes with some peril and then on top of that one of the nice things is that it's not just spell in a can but you can have specialized wands like the wand of manifold missiles you know the old wand of magic missile but if you use, you know, you can make a wand of magic missile, which is just magic missile spell. But the wand of manifold missiles, it's extra missiles. So it's like magic missile plus. And you have one for fireballs. You have, um, you know, there's a couple of these wands out there. Yeah, I think in a lot of ways that was uh, our way of having your cake and eating it too. Still with sort of the limitations that we wanted to put on wands. You know, they're, of course, higher level things. And they give you a little bit more. But... Um, not as much. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about, Stephen, is some of the classes. And of all the classes, the one that I found the most interesting was actually the Sorcerer, because 
it's a real ingenious way you came up with the saucer, which is, I like how they are sort of the wild card, if you will. If you remember in D&D, there was this character class called Wild Mage, where they sort of had unpredictable magics, and they sort of can pull from different schools. And it was one of those classes I really enjoyed. But of course, you know, there was always like a 1% chance your spells would explode in your face. I like Saucer because it feels like that class without the blowing up in your face aspect. Yeah, I mean, the blowing up in your face aspect sounds cool until it actually blows up in your face. And so uh, we really wanted to kind of double down on the whole idea of bloodlines, which uh, uh, was is something that Pice was quite proud of, like the, their ability to create interesting sorcerers through different bloodlines. And then when we were figuring out the, the various magical traditions, it became obvious to nearly all of us that having this as the class that can, you know, it picks its tradition just seemed very, uh, that, that wild thing. You never know what you're going to get when you go up against a sorcerer. Is it going to be a primal sorcerer? Is it going to be a cold sorcerer? Is it going to start lobbing fireballs at you? Uh, we all thought that that was uh, a really fun way to do it. Of course, unsure what our fans would think about it, so we put it in the playtest, and luckily uh, the, the fans agreed, uh, of course, with some tweaking uh, as we went to the final class. So yay, yay us. No, I love the Sorcerer because in our most recent game, it was became one of those discussions again of like, oh, who's going to be the healer? But this time there wasn't as much discussion because someone's like, you know what? I can make a saucer healer now, and that's cool because maybe it's you know it's it's a little different than your standard cleric healer. You know, it's it just feels different. Even yeah, the spells might be the same, might both be divine school, but it just has a completely different feel to it, and you can just play it differently. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that people enjoyed in pathfinder one especially as the system matured was their ability to play basically nearly anything that their imaginations could uh could want so as much as possible knowing our limitations with the, with the first core book we wanted to engender that rather than uh making people like feel like they could they had to go back to basics even though in some ways they kind of did um, and the sorcerer was a big way in which we were able to do that to a certain degree. And something else I noticed is that there seems to be a common theme for the classes is that they're sort of the core class and then a subclass, and you will. Like, obviously, you have bloodlines for sorcerer, and I forgot what they're called for some of the other ones, but for like the champions, they can become like, you know, they can be a paladin or they can be, uh, was it? I forgot what they were, but like Inquisitor, like they had different subcategories and the rogues, some could be thieves and so forth. And it seemed like it was always class subclass, which I like because it has a lot of flavor. And also you could just keep adding subclasses and change up how the main class works without having to reinvent the main class over and over again. Yeah, that uh, a lot of that came out of our discussion about uh, how archetypes uh, worked in in Pathfinder First Edition, uh, and a lot of times, an archetype either allowed you to to stray from your class a bit, or it really just doubled down on an aspect of the class that a lot of ways we kind of wish was just in the class anyway. And so when when we made the various 
quote unquote subclasses, uh, and each one has has kind of a, a, a different, a slightly different way of going about it. It was a way for us to uh, sort of built in build in the archetypes that we thought were really crucial to the class, which will of course give us greater freedom later on when we create archetypes that you know basically gravitate to something completely different or something uh, a little bit uh, more out of the main orbit of the class. So when it came to ancestries, the big one that people are talking about is obviously the goblin. What was the thinking behind, okay, goblin went from joke in D&D to kind of mascot and fun monster in Pathfinder 1st Edition to now a full-fledged ancestry in Pathfinder 2nd Edition? Well, of all of those uh, sort of swarmy in first edition, they, they use the very insensitive term uh, demi-humans or humanoid uh, things. You know, Pathfinder is known for its goblins. And with the Weeby Goblins and all of its very iterations, we give you a chance to actually play goblins. People love to do that, right? Playing these kind of mischievous, you know, but not quite totally evil sort of critters, right? That's 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 a lot of fun to play. Uh, and so as we talked about what ancestry we're going to add in the game, um, we kicked around a lot of ideas, but it seemed dumb if we didn't do goblin. People love our goblins. So the book is gigantic. It's, it's, a, it's, it's like it's weird because it's a big book, but it doesn't feel that big in the sense that I actually broke it down. Like a perfect example is in, in the Pathfinder first edition book, I believe I'm trying to find my notes here, that the section on describing fighting and battle is something like 24 pages. But in this book, if you take out like the charts and the graphs, it's only like six or eight pages long. It's, it's much more efficient now. So really the bulk of the book isn't on like how combat works. It's really just about how spells work. And, um, you know, it, it feels like it takes its time. Like one of the things I have with the Starfinder rule book, as I, I know it was like a huge rule book and they had to sort of condense it down from like 800 down to 500 pages. And it, it almost feels like a Cliff Notes version. It feels very tight. But when I read the Pathfinder second edition book, it's huge, but it feels like it breathes a lot. Like you took your time to explain things. You didn't have to compress things and get it down to the bare essences. You weren't counting every single word. It feels much more um, relaxed. And you, at least in my opinion, you can really sense it as you read the book. Well, that's good because we strive for that. I mean, I I joked a lot in the office that we had uh, a very hard road with that because uh, we had a lot of competing goals with that core rule. One, we wanted the text to be a little bit bigger. Um, We, (laughs) mostly from older players, uh, uh, Julia Martin, uh, who I worked with at Wizard of the Coast, uh, a famous writer and editor of second edition and third edition. she, when she came to play Pathfinder with me, she was like, Stephen, can you make this typeface any bigger or any smaller, please? Right. Um, so we wanted to make that feel a little bit more airy. We wanted to have more artwork to help sort of uh, figure out, um, you know, give people a sense of the game world and their options and everything else. We wanted to be a little bit more uh, I, I, casual in how we describe things. Uh, and we wanted it in a book 
that was smaller. One of those things was going to have to give, and actually the size of the book uh, was the main thing that, that was able to give. But a lot of the structure and uh, of the rules helped us save space. Uh, a lot of finding very uh, finding uh, formats that we could convey information quickly helped us with that. And that's I, I think that's that airiness you see. In, in some ways, it's it's not leaner, but it's smarter. And uh, and and in some ways lighter. Um, so uh, you know, if if that's what you found from it, then excellent. That's that was the main goal. No, definitely, it feels much more. It's much more inviting. It doesn't feel like a, a traditional rules. It feels like it hits that perfect balance of, you know, it's a, it's a rule book that's talking to you both as a player who's never done this before and someone who's done this for a long time. It's very inviting. And then when you read each description, it takes its time. It doesn't feel like you're compressing every single word. And it feels like you feel that definitely in Pathfinder First Edition. And you know what? It could be the small typeface. Like you're reading every page and every page is just compressed to the absolute point of breaking of how much is in there. But, you know, you could flip through this and you look at the overall definition of the class and there's a lot of white space on the page. It doesn't have to be condensed. And it's and even as you flip through the spells, the spells aren't huge, but yet they tell you exactly what you need to do. And also, I think a huge amount about is back to the keyword system is because everything has keywords you can convey a huge amount of information just through some keywords and you can then concentrate on the you know description of the spell and sort of the fun aspects yeah it's a very inviting book uh until you consider that you could probably kill somebody with it if you if you swung it at them um but yeah all of those things we worked very hard in order to make sure that uh that was the final final book that you got um and yeah i think I, you know i'm a little biased but i think we we pulled it off to a great degree and yeah and the artwork I mean, I've been talking with some of the other people who have seen it. I mean, you guys always have great artwork, but I don't know. Whoever, you guys really knocked it out of the park. This one is, the artwork is insane in this book. The Especially the full page spreads are absolutely ridiculously good. Well, it's very easy when, you know, you have uh, the beautiful and talented Wayne Reynolds um, doing, you know, the, the basics of it. But uh yeah, our entire art team and the uh, uh, the work of Sarah Robinson and 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 her group, yeah, just really stands out in this book. It's very pretty. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. So why don't we talk a little bit about the crafting system because that's obviously something that's very near and dear to everyone's heart, and that's a big part of the game. Not only you know is it fun finding items, but then making them. And I found the crafting system very interesting. Or why don't you explain a little bit of how it works? Because, uh, yeah, why don't you just explain it rather than me ramble here? Yeah, the basic gist of it is, um, and Logan was the one who came up with the idea, and it's, it's actually pretty brilliant, is we wanted crafting to be cool. We didn't want it to mess up the economy too much. Um, and so the whole idea is you can take your time, not spend a whole you know, or not spend uh, uh, a whole lot of money and craft an item. And we wanted to make the crafting times a little bit more realistic with that. We know that that is unsatisfying to some people. And so, um, 
you can speed it up and spend more in order to get your items faster. Uh, and so a lot of it puts the speed of crafting in the hands of the GM, how they want to run their game, how they want to be able to run downtime, but and still giving a lot of control to the, to the uh, uh, characters in, in you know, what they want to focus on and what they want to do with them. And uh, how does it actually work with the crafting? You have to find the item if you want it to be like uncommon or so forth, or find the recipe, should I say? Yeah, the formula. Um, and so, you know, when uh, I think when you're trained in crafting, you basically get all of uh, the formulas that are in, uh, you know, are in the equipment section. And uh, if you get magical crafting, you get a certain amount of formulas. And that, that way, formulas can become treasure, especially for those uncommon and rare things as well. Um, and then once you have that formula, it's just a matter of how much time and how much money you want to put into the crafting in order to uh, pull it off. And one thing I also realized, because a lot of times we would have crafting in you know, Pathfinder, and everyone would take 10 or take 20, and voila, you'd automatically make that item. But there's one thing I realized, that take 10 and take 20, that's gone in Pathfinder 2nd Edition. Oh, yeah. To a certain degree, right? Uh, uh, there are ways to sort of replicate it, but... Um, uh, yeah, we we like the idea that uh, uh, when you make a roll, uh, roll well, um, and and took out uh, a lot of sort of those baseline things. Uh, of course, uh, GMs in their own game can kind of hand wave that if it's of course you're going to be able to 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 put this all together. Um, uh, please do, but yeah, we 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 like uh, having a little bit of chance when you roll the dice. No, I love that whole idea. I was like, I was searching everywhere for it. I was like, holy crap, it's gone. Like, take 10, gone. Take 20, gone. Like, everything requires a roll now. As you said, you can hand wave that or as a GM do it however you want. But that whole, oh, yeah, I just do it, that's pretty much removed from the game in almost every aspect, aspect because there's always the chance of the critical success, critical failure uh, throughout the game now. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 removed sort of um, uh, in the GM advice and everything else, right? And we're really big on this, uh, at least the design team, when we talk to uh, the folks doing Adventures and Adventure Path, is don't put in a role where you really don't need it. So, for instance, if if you've got a whole bunch of wolf tracks and they're pretty obvious and it's and they'll you know you'll have a habit of putting a very low role. Just say you notice the tracks, right? And you might have to make a roll to glean some more information from that, but it's perfectly okay when things uh, seem absolutely, uh, you know, foolproof to to figure out that you just say, yeah, you figure that out, or you're able to do this. Uh, but we give that a lot in the GM's hand uh, in order for them to create good, compelling, and fun narratives. So what was the whole philosophy around hero points in the sense that it's it's interesting because it's like every session you get a hero point. They don't save between sessions. And you can you can always use a hero point to avoid death. So what was the philosophy against that? Is it like a do-over or it's it's I don't know if it's I mean I haven't used it enough. Is it 
make it easier for the GM to, quote, kill off characters and not feel so bad about it? Is it to kind of raise the stakes without having to actually raise the stakes? Like, what was the thought process behind that? I think the best way to look at hero points is a sort of narrative insurance, right? So, I mean, if you want to um, suck all of your uh, hero points, uh, no matter how many you gained, in order to pop back to life, right, that seemed, that seemed good. You can also spend a hero point to reroll a roll. Uh, why we chose sessions, and we had a lot of conversations about it, is basically for two reasons. Uh, the first one is it's really easy to remember, oh, okay, we're sitting around the table. We know that our hero points sort of reset, which actually works really well in organized play environment and through most people's play environment. Uh, of course, we knew that individual GMs will probably have different ideas on it, but it, the system is simple enough flexible enough so if you're running a lunch game at your high school or college right you might say yeah hero points don't refresh until like every four games um uh so to you you can easily sort of hack your level of insurance there but it's mostly an insurance policy because the d20 really is a ball of uh variability and uh and sometimes the best laid plans and the best role playing in the world just uh, gets denied by that D20. And it's a way for the player to sit there and say, okay, I want to mulligan. I mean, I personally like it as a GM in the sense that you can, quote, kill the characters and not feel so bad about it and not even feel bad about it. But sometimes it, it, there's a lot of, obviously, opinions on character death. My my opinion is because I play almost all adventure paths, is it, it can de derail the adventure path. And it's like one thing if you're doing lots of little mini adventures and, you know, you have a whole cadre of characters you can pull from. But if you're doing a very long adventure path and you're dedicating one to two years to one set of characters and character dies, you know, I've I have lots of tricks up my sleeves to bring the characters back or to do something to bring them back, like with heavy penalties or even come in with a different character. But this way, it's like, OK, uh, yeah, don't touch that. It, it pretty much almost killed you. Would you want to try again? Yeah, exactly. Uh, like I said, it's, it's an insurance policy. Um, personally, uh, you should always feel bad about killing players. Right. That's illegal. But killing characters never feel bad about. Oh, okay. You're right. You're right. <laughs> I was the evil coming out in me. What do you want? No, I understand. I feel that draw too. So what was your favorite new rule that you added to the game? Not you personally, but like you collectively. Oh my goodness. That's, that's like a Sophie's choice. Uh, it could be a few rules then. Like what are some of your favorite new rules that have been added to the game? How about that? I, I, I'm very, I'm very proud of the action economy. It's something I've been working on for a period of time and uh, the culmination of probably uh, 20 years of thought uh, on role-playing game. And I'm very happy that people like it. Uh, I like the degrees of success. Um, I, I, I like the streamlining of the uh, proficiency system um, I like how much fun magic items are. I like how interesting the classes are. Like I can't choose, right? It's, it's, I'm, I'm very happy with so much in this game and I'm glad that, uh, it seems that people are happy with it too, because I enjoy making games that people like to live in and, uh, for long periods of time and just find a lot of fun in. And I think, uh, in a lot of ways, this edition of Pathfinder 
really nails that. Uh, I think the first edition of Pathfinder nailed it as well. Um, and I've been very happy to work on a lot of games that nail it in different ways. But um, yeah, P2 is, is something really special. So what are some of the items that were on the cutting room floor, if you will? I mean, as big as these rules are, you couldn't get every single thing in. Was there something that, I mean, obviously residence was one that never quite worked out, and we all know about that. But is there anything else that you kind of wished or you still need to iterate a little and hopefully it'll come into a later version? Oh, there's a bunch of that, but I don't know. Uh, I'd be speaking out of turn with it. Um, I think Resonance was sort of a bold experiment that, quite frankly, I didn't think was going to reach light of day. But uh, it was a good experiment to have just to get the feedback of what people thought about a, a system like that. There are a bunch of things, um, and they will probably, uh, in maybe different forms that were originally designed, see the light of day. And I'm sure the very, uh, very numerous amount of tomes that are going to come out for for, for P2, but uh, uh, telling you individual ones would probably be speaking a little bit out of turn. Aw. All right, how about this? I'm talking James Jacobs, and a surprising number of his characters and creations from his home campaign have ended up in Pathfinder. What are some of the items that you have from your home campaigns that ended up in Pathfinder? Mm, um, I don't know. I kind of take a... a look at it uh, a little bit differently each each project is its own sort of widget and i'm the kind of de designer that a lot of times i like taking the most challenging part of the system and trying my damnedest to make it work so and i'm such a systems person that uh uh you know the the part of the book that nobody else really wants to take either because it seems really intimidating or they just don't know how to do it. That's usually the parts I'll grab. So very little of kind of my home gaming group stuff ends up in books because I'm I, I'm too busy working on bigger picture items. Oh come on! You must have at least one thing that was created. I mean, you did the anti paladin, correct? Oh no, I didn't. Uh, I worked on the advanced players guide, but I didn't work on the anti paladin. I meant the what the the iconic because it's an iconic named after you. No, I just sort of grabbed that because uh, I've got that anti-paladin tendencies. And so everybody kept on asking, what's the name of the iconic anti-paladin? I put it on the back of my business cards. And so the joke around the office, it's named Stephen. All right. Well, I guess you can go the other way instead of uh, a Pathfinder, instead of a homebrew item ending up in Pathfinder, a Pathfinder item ended up on you. Uh, just about everything. Every, any time that I uh, end up putting something in the game or find something in the game that I think is really cool, uh, I end up uh, throwing in my home campaign. That's just kind of the, the, the GM that I am. What type of game are you running at home? I'm curious. Right now, I'm not running anything because I'm in the process of moving uh, into a new place. Um, uh, probably in the very near future, I'm going to be uh, running the, the game I'm working on, uh, Delve, as, as a home game. I've been running this thing at various conventions, but now it's time to do a full-fledged campaign. Cool. Well... We've been talking for quite a while. Is there any things you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? Any things that I missed that you wanted to talk about? No, I think you were pretty comprehensive. We went a uh, we went uh, round and round with a whole bunch of rules. So, um, other than you know August first, I hope people play the heck out of this thing and really have a great time. Uh, that was 
the overriding design goal for the game is to give you all great tools to create great stories and have a lot of fun. I mean, yeah, I, I've only played it a little bit so far, but so far I, I really love it. And obviously, I mean, everyone's a, it's like a broken record. It's like that action economy, action economy, but it's like three actions versus two. It's sort of like a night and day. It, it really emphasizes going early. It gives even as a, as a GM so much more you can do with the monsters. It's just, it's just a beautiful thing. You know what? When you do third edition, we'll have four actions. How about that? <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, uh, I, I'm glad that people enjoy the flexibility. I, I know I do. All right. Well, thanks so much, Steve. And uh, I'm sure I'll be talking to you in the future. Absolutely. It was, it was wonderful to, uh, to be on your show. Uh, and I, I sure, I'm sure we will because you're running, you're running my adventure in your Dead Sons campaign right now, aren't you? Oh, God. I, you know what? I totally forgot that. I've had every author for every adventure in Dead Sons on my show except you. And I'm a total idiot because we are wrapping up book five or we're in the middle of book five right now. I need to have you on the show because I've had each author on the show and then I've had them play NPCs while they're on the show. So I have to get you on. Oh, absolutely. I'd love to be on. Okay, definitely. I'm definitely going to do that. I'll, uh, I'll contact you later, but yeah, I, I have, oh, you're going to like it. You're going to like who I'm going to give you. You're going to have fun. You're going to get to have your evilness come out in, uh, in wonderful ways. Let me promise you that. I love that. All right. Well, I guess you're going to be on again in the near future on the Dead Sons campaign. But uh, other than that, I will talk to you later. Sounds great. Thanks again for having me on. Hey, everyone. Steve here. So again, thank you, Steven. I would have kept going, but we were actually having some technical difficulties, so I actually had to cut the interview a little bit short. Otherwise, I probably could have gone an hour and a half, two hours with him easy. I had tons more to cover with him, but I think, I think we covered a lot of topics there. And if you heard, I'm definitely going to have him on the Starfinder podcast because I always have the author of each book on, and we're currently on book five, and I kind of almost forgot about even inviting him. There's just been so much going on with Pathfinder, but I got to get him on the show, and I have his favorite NPC from that module. I'm going to get him to play that NPC, so he's very excited, so look for that in the near future. Also, as I said last time, in a few days, check out my big preview for Lost Omens World Guide. I'm going to have two Pizer developers on the show. You can hear all about the Lost Omens World Guide, what it covers. I have the book. I've read it. It's awesome. They're going to go through what to expect when you get your hands on a copy in a few weeks. And don't forget, if you like actual play podcasts and are new to Roll for Combat, check out our Starfinder podcast. It's going on right now. You can actually jump right in. We have recaps on every single book. We're currently up to book five. You can jump right in and you'll get right up to speed. We have recap episodes. No problem. You don't have to start all the way at episode zero or one if you don't want to. And also don't forget, August 1st, we have the new Roll for Combat Pathfinder podcast where we're going to be playing the Fall of Plague Stone. And finally, do check out our Discord channel. If you want to talk about Starfinder, talk about Pathfinder, but most importantly, play those games. We have something like 75 tables of Starfinder and Pathfinder games going on on our Discord channel. Just go to discord.rollforcombat.com. 
There's always games going on. Actually, there's going to be, I think we have something like 26 games ready for sign up for game day. Game day is an annual online convention run by Paizo. And we have, I think, something like 24 or 26 tables ready for you to sign up and play. So if you want to play some games and you can't find a group and you want to jump into Pathfinder 2nd Edition right away or play something from Starfinder or play like one of the specials that you can't play because you couldn't get to Origins, you couldn't get to Gen Con, go to Game Day, go to our Discord channel. You can find out all about it. Sign up now and play in a few weeks. Check that out. Anyhow, with that, I'll talk to you and see you later.